All right. Um, good evening and welcome once again to discipleship class. This is class number nine. And tonight we're going to continue talking about the word of reconciliation and rightly dividing and skillfully applying the word of God. And that's a very, very important uh, subject for us. And um, anyway, so great. We've got a good group in the room. We're expecting some more. So those of you who are watching from online, if you hear uh, some commotion in the room, that's just another group of folks uh, that are getting here a few minutes late. But with that said, let's pray and we'll get right into the material tonight. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have and for the ability to take advantage of this opportunity um, Lord, I talk to people every day who would really like to be here, but their schedule will not allow it, and so they, they watch later and after the fact, which is, uh, again, admirable, and I appreciate that commitment, Father. But Lord, we, we thank you for uh, people who are willing to learn and to grow and to develop in the things that you have prepared for us. Lord, I thank you for your sweet Holy Spirit who's in us, he's with us, he's among us, he's upon us tonight. Enabling and empowering us, Father, to understand the, the truths, Lord, that are in your word, eternal wisdom, Father, for our lives, things that you set aside for us from the foundation of the world, Lord. And now here we are in this moment of our lives to pick those things up and, and begin to apply them and, and experience the benefit from them. So, Lord, equip us tonight that we might uh, personally benefit, but also, Father, that we might uh, better minister to others and serve others for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So let's begin um, with just a little bit of a uh, review. And this has been a verse we've referred back to now for a few classes. Uh, before we started um, live streaming, we, we mentioned class number nine means one-fourth of the way through. And uh, we're actually uh, a little bit ahead of schedule, which is a good thing. Sometimes I'm uh, behind schedule at this point already. So uh, we're going to try to keep on uh, that pace. And the Lord's going to help us. Amen. So uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and um, it, beginning at verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So every born-again believer has been called by God to do the work of the ministry. We've covered that extensively, so I'm not going to try to go back through all that. We see that the ministry that has been given to every born-again believer is the ministry of reconciliation. And that we've been so thoroughly reconciled to God that we can now be used by God as an agent, as an instrument of reconciliation in His hands. And we've talked about how reconciliation takes on uh, two different forms. That would be uh, people being born again, coming to, to God through salvation, and then through uh, the uh, secondary branch of discipleship, secondary only in order, not well, I guess we could say importance because if you're not born again, then discipleship's really um, it doesn't apply. It begins with the, with the new birth. So we see then that we have been uh, God has committed to us. Let's read it exactly the way it says that God has committed to us the word of reconciliation, and this is speaking of the word of God, uh, His word that um, He has inspired and made available to us. 
Hebrews 4.12 says of that word that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God is living and powerful, living and powerful, and it's able to distinguish uh, the difference between the part of you that's spirit, the part of you that is soul, and the part of you that is body. Now, some of the things that we covered last week, for instance, the Word uh, of God in John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And that's, that's an otherworldly concept, but one way to embrace it and understand it is that Jesus is a living and breathing expression of the divine intelligence. If you want to know what God's thinking, look at the life of Jesus, because Jesus' earthly life among us, rubbing shoulders with us, was meant to express, display, set an example for what God is thinking. In other words, Him being the Word made flesh, you know, I'm, I'm communicating to you now by the means of words what I'm thinking. Um, God communicated to you and me what He's thinking, how He thinks in the person of His Son. Dr. Bill Winston said, Truth is the highest form of reality. I think we mentioned this last week, but in case we didn't, remember Jesus didn't just know the truth. He didn't just have the truth, but he identified himself as the truth. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. One of my favorite quotes along these lines is from Bill Johnson. He said, Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect theology. So theology being the study of God um, and studying the life of Jesus in the four Gospels is studying the perfect theology. I like to say it another way. If you can't find it in the life of Jesus, then it's not God. And there's a lot of confusion about who God is and how God operates and what God does. A lot of people saying things about God that aren't true. And, and the way we know they're not true is because the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is the truth. And if we uh, look closely at his life, this is where a lot of these complex questions can find their complete answer. Amen. So, for, for example, people talk about, um, you know, God doing horrible, terrible things to people to punish them. Well, we don't see that in the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when a group of Jesus' disciples wanted to call fire down from heaven on a whole community of people, the Samaritans, um, a whole race of people for that matter, living there in Samaria, um, Jesus told him, he said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to take life, but to give it. So, again, looking closely at the life of Jesus is where we find answers to some of these more complex and confusing ideas about God and who He is. Then we kind of modified this. I just went with the older version of it. But the simple question you should ask for everything that has anything to do with you, what does the Word say? What does the Word say? Please, you know, if, if you're going to draw a line in the sand, if you're going to um, establish a non-negotiable in your life, then uh, how about this? I'll never make another decision without first seeing what the Word says. <laughs> Amen. What does the Word say about these things? Because we can never go wrong doing what the Word of God says. My best advice and the best advice I believe you could ever give anybody, the best advice I could ever give you is agree with God and agree with Him quickly. Now, 
In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus uh, said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide, the King James Version says, Continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's a, a lot in these two verses and the verses surrounding this. We won't expand on it um, right now. But the one thing that I do want to draw your attention to as we've returned back to this verse now more than on one occasion is the inseparable connection between discipleship and continuing in the Word of God. So these two are so, you know, intertwined with one another that you can't have one without the other. Do you see this? A disciple by definition, according to Jesus, is someone who abides or continues uh, in His Word. Now, some things that we did not cover last week from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And if you remember, I'm not going to do it again tonight, but that was when we read the passage from uh, Rick Renner, uh, really you know, unpacking what inspired means. It means God breathed, but it means a whole lot more than that. So all Scripture is given by inspiration of God or God breathed and is profitable, it's beneficial for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, uh, child of God, uh, that's not speaking of gender here, okay, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I don't think we covered this, and, and so I wanted to go back and make sure that we did. Um, equipped means competent, proficient, skilled, and capable. Equipped means competent, proficient, skilled, and capable. It's one thing to have been given a job. It's another thing to be competent, proficient, skilled, and capable in, in performing that job, right? You can be given an assignment and know a little bit about it and do the best you can and learn as you go, right? Um, so we see then that uh, the, the, the Scriptures uh, is what, and, and you know, is how we become competent, proficient, skilled, and capable. I like to say it this way. The new birth qualifies you for the ministry of reconciliation. The Word of God, which has been committed to us, right, is what makes us competent, proficient, skilled, and capable to do the ministry of reconciliation. All right, now. So let's, uh, let's jump ahead. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. Again, we looked at this verse last week, but I'm leading up to where we're going to jump off to some new stuff this week. And it says there, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. So notice, he didn't say study to be approved. He said study to reveal the approval you've already been given. That's so important. I don't mind repeating that multiple times. When you come to God, you receive approval from God. And learning how to live in alignment with the new creation you became the day you were born again is how the approval we've already been given is revealed in our lives. We're not doing what we do for God to be approved by God. We're not, we're not you know, coming to class and reading our Bible and praying and going to church and trying to be nice and trying to be good so that God will approve of us. That's not how this works anymore, okay? 
When you were born again, you were made right before him in his eyes. So as we study the scriptures, as we, as we learn, remember the statement of, of truth, right? And our lives coming into alignment and agreement with it. Um, this is how the approval that we've already been given is revealed. And then Hebrews 5 and uh, 12 and 13 and 14. We looked at this one as well last week and we'll comment on it again. It says, for though by this time... You ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So in this particular passage, he's talking about Men and women who have been in church, been saved uh, uh, long enough to be teaching and leading and serving others, serving in the ministry of reconciliation, but they still need someone to go back and teach them again the very basic principles, the beginning principles of what it means to live for God and, and uh, so forth and so on. And as we pointed out already, and again, I know this is just a review from last week, but... Just because you've been saved a long time doesn't mean you're mature. It doesn't mean you're growing or have grown. And, and that, that's, um, it, it's, there's a parallel to that in our physical development. I mean, someone can be a full-grown, physically full-grown adult, but still have the, the mindset and the mentality, uh, the maturity of someone much younger. Uh, and, of course, this is also true when it comes to spiritual growth and um, development. But he didn't say they weren't knowledgeable. He said they were unskilled. And, and that's huge right there it, because it's, it's not just what we know from the Word of God, but it's what we know how to apply, what we know how to put into practice, what we know how to do. The difference is in the doing. The difference is in the doing. There are people, you know, who have heard a lot of word. There are people who have heard a lot of sermons. There's people who have listened to a lot of sermon series, okay, but have experienced little to no change in their lives because as important as hearing is and faith is awakened and aroused and strengthened and grows in our lives by hearing the word of God, but if, there's, if, if we never put action with that faith, it remains dormant, or as James says, faith without action, faith without corresponding action or works is dead. Okay, So the difference is in the doing, and that's what he, he's talking about here, who by reason of use. And they've actually you know, done something with it, have, have put it into practice in their lives. One, one way to, um, to illustrate this, okay, you could learn everything the Bible has to say about tithing, you could travel the United States and teach seminars on tithing. You, you could um, write books on tithing. But you will never know tithing until you actually consistently tithe. Um, that's the only way you'll ever know it to the degree, to the level, to the extent that, that you need to know it. Uh, because it's only in the doing that you reap the benefits and become fully convinced that um, it is a wise and right thing to do. Okay? So I want us to talk then tonight about you know, these two things, learning to rightly divide the Word of God and then skillfully apply the Word of God. And 
these also are in a specific order. In other words, you will never be able to effectively and skillfully apply the Word of God until you are first able to rightly divide it. If you never learn to rightly divide it, then you're going to be limited in your ability to skillfully apply it. So, I'm trying to connect a bunch of things together, and I'm, really, I'm feeling a little rushed, and I don't know why I'm doing it to myself, okay? So, rightly dividing the Word of God, skillfully applying the Word of God. Let's, um, let's, uh, let's talk about it, okay? Now, amen. I'm trying to see where we really need to begin with this. Um, all right, so what does it mean then to, to divide, rightly dividing the Word of God? That's the instructions, right, in 2 Timothy there, to rightly divide the Word of God. So what does that mean? So literally, it means to cut or to divide, to handle correctly and skillfully. So we're talking about understanding something, but... We're also talking about developing a skill based upon what we're understanding and what we're, uh, you know, what we're learning, all right? And if this is confusing to you, just stay with me here for just a moment. There's an excerpt of Scripture. I'm not going to try to read the, the whole passages that, that are all around it, but we, we are warned to not walk in craftiness and to not handle the Word of God deceitfully. <clears throat> You can make the Word of God, don't, just stay with me on this, I'm not trying to be funny or, or scare you or anything like that, but you can make the Bible say anything you want to make it say by taking certain pieces of it out of context. So this would be incorrectly dividing the Word of God. That, that would be taking, a, a, you know, cutting a portion out and pulling it away from everything else to suit your own uh, ideas or, or your own agenda or your preconceived. That's, that's what a lot of people do. They have, they have, and we talked about this last Wednesday night in, in the main service, but, you know, all these traditional beliefs, things that, that um, have been passed down from generation to generation to generation that people just accept as the truth because that was what mom and them believed and that's what... Mamanims, mamanims believe. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just and and so we never even question whether or not it it has it, it's supported by the Word of God. Stay stay with me. I'm I, I'm just I'm trying to make you question things here, but sometimes we need to question things. And and we made a point that you know so much of what a lot of people believe is based more in tradition than actually what God has said in the Word. And that's all uh, a consequence of, of improperly dividing the Word of God. So when we say that you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, let me give you an example. Um, the Bible says there is no God. I, mean, I, 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 can, I can tell you there is no God, and I'm actually quoting something from the Bible but I've incorrectly cut it because what it literally says is the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Do you see the difference there, right? It, it, you know, you can, so that, that's a real simple basic example. But people do that 
on small scale and big scale. Sometimes it's done out of ignorance. Sometimes it's done, again, out of preconceived ideas. Sometimes it's, it's done with a hidden agenda. Um, anyway, but that would be an example of incorrectly dividing the Word of God or handling it in a deceitful way. Remember, to be deceived is to believe something to be true that's not true. So if you handle the Word of God deceitfully, this means you're using it to, to, to justify beliefs that you have or inspire beliefs in other people uh, based upon something that the Bible says that's not, um, that's building a belief that is uh, incorrect or in error. Okay? So most of the error and resulting confusion and ineffectiveness in the body of Christ today can be traced back to incorrectly dividing the Word of God. Incorrectly dividing the Word of God. And so the classic mistake, you still with me? This is one of those classes where we just kind of get, we got to, you know, the, the word in the Greek is prokopto, P-R-O-K-O-P-T-O, okay? And, and it literally means like somebody taking a machete and cutting their way forward, all right? So, you know, this is a kind of a segment of this, of this teaching where we just, we just got to chop through some things and, and cut our way forward. And let's make some progress and, and, and dig our heels in, okay? I know some of you are tired, amen, uh, and maybe I'm sensing a little bit of that. Uh, but the classic mistake that people make is they try to balance the Word of God instead of dividing or cutting the Word of God. And what I mean by balance is... And how many times have I experienced this in my life growing up is where this, the, the pastor would preach grace on Sunday morning and then works on Sunday night. Or he would preach uh, God is good and kind and merciful on Sunday morning and then preach God's going to get you and is out to get you on Sunday night. And he would use Bible verses to support both sermons. He would, he would have you turn to a place in the Bible for both positions. And the idea is we've got to preach a balanced gospel. We can't get too carried away with this grace stuff, is, is the thinking. So if we, if we preach X number of sermons on grace, then we've got to be sure and balance that out with X number of sermons on works. Are you seeing this? Okay, And that is the classic mistake that a lot of people make. But Jesus did not make that mistake. Jesus understood how to rightly divide the, the Word of God. Now, where should we make the first cut? If we're going to take a Bible and we're going to cut it, <laughs> I don't mean literally, but, you know, literally. Okay, you understand what I mean? Don't, don't start taking a pocket knife to your Bibles, all right? But if, if you were... If, if, to me, it's an obvious first cut. Anybody, wanna, anybody in the room want to take a stab at where the first cut should be made? The old and the new. We've got to be able to divide or cut the old part from the new part. That's not to say the old part isn't important. The Old Testament is absolutely critically important because Jesus came not to do away with the old, but to fulfill the old. Jesus came to do for you as you, what no one else could do, and that is actually live up to those 613 laws and commandments and ordinances in, in the Old Testament. So the idea then is not that the Old Testament is, is bad or wrong, 
But it's not the testament or the covenant or the operating agreement that we live under. There were people on planet earth before Jesus came and before there was a New Testament who lived under that covenant, who lived under that operating agreement with God. But Jesus came and made all things new. So I like to say it this way, and I'm going to use a big word here, but um, I am an expositor of the Old Testament, but I am a minister of the new. Now, expositor is just a really fancy way of, ex- of saying and I'm an explainer. I explain the New Testament. I'm the Old Testament. I'm an expositor of the Old Testament, which means to explain, to break down, um, you know, take the, the individual words, what does this mean, so forth and so on, all right? But I'm a minister of the New. And to effectively uh, uh, explain the Old Testament is to show how everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the day when Jesus will come and be the fulfillment of all of it. So even like the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were all designed uh, to prepare people's hearts for the concept of a substitute being sacrificed for their sin, for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. So I'm an expositor of the Old Testament, but I'm a, I'm a minister. I minister the New Testament um, to people. So we've got to be able to make um, that cut. Now, I want to spend, I'm, I don't say, I don't think it's going to be the, the rest of our time, but I'm going to spend uh, uh, at least another 30, 40 minutes just drilling down into what we mean by that because it's too important to leave it up in the air. It's, it's too important. Even if you think you know what I mean by that, I want to make uh, really, really good and sure that you and every person listening to me, watching me right now, understands what we mean by dividing the Old Testament from the New Testament. So the first major division then in the Scriptures that we see, and it's obvious, is the division between what is called the, the Old uh, Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, when we look at some of the fundamental differences between these two covenants. One of the first things that we see is that the Old Testament proves to you and me the power of sin. The Old Testament proves to you and me the power of sin. And our inability to live right before God in our own strength and ability. So the Old Testament proves and establishes the power of sin. The New Testament on... uh, uh, Yes, sir. Uh, well, I'm not sure why it's doing that right there. Okay. Um, oh, well, I, no, I'm sorry. I will. I'll get there though. Would you like, I don't, I don't, I was looking, I'm getting confused in all this and all that, but, uh, but no, did you, please help me. All right. At, at any point. All right. Um, I do have some slides on this. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to kind of get settled in here. So just, if y'all will bear with me for just a minute, we'll get settled in. Okay. Um, because I want you to understand, I'm trying to help you understand what I mean about the difference between balance versus cut, right? So the Old Testament, again, established, among other things, not the only thing it established, but I'm just trying to help you make some comparisons here, is the difference between the power of sin, okay, but the New Testament established for us the power of love, or we could say the power of God's love, or the power of forgiveness. One of the things that we see in Romans 5, and we will spend almost an entire class on Romans chapter 5, 
But what we see in Romans chapter 5 is that God's grace is much more powerful than our sin. That, that grace, he says it different ways, but one of the ways he says it is that where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. All right? So this is the first major division, and we see that in the Old Testament, um, it establishes the power of sin, but the New Testament uh, reveals to us and establishes forever for us the power of love and that God's grace is greater than our sin. So here's a, here's a practical example of this. In the, in the Old Testament... If you were to come in contact with someone who has leprosy, there are all kinds of guidelines and ordinances specific to how to deal with the disease of leprosy. So in the Old Testament, if you were to come in contact with someone who had leprosy, anybody remember what would, what would happen to you if you touched someone who had leprosy? You were made unclean. You were made unclean. If you touched a leper in the Old Testament, you became unclean. But what happens in the New Testament when you touch a leper? In the New Testament, you touch a leper, the leper is made clean. Jesus touched the lepers, and everybody's like, he's breaking the law, he's doing wrong. He, you know, Moses told us not to do this, God told us not to do this. But in the New Testament, Jesus touched the leper. The leper did not make him unclean, he made the leper clean. All right, so... What we see then is the Old Testament is a law-based, and because it's law-based, that makes it performance-based. Law-based, performance-based approach to having a relationship with God. So basically you have this external standard that God established and put in writing. He says, now, if you want to be right with me, live up to that. Obey all of these. Now, the one thing that you've got to realize as well is that when we talk about being right before God in the eyes of God based upon our performance and our obedience to the law, God didn't grade on the curve. Do you understand what I mean by grading on the curve? You, you didn't get partial credit for getting 8 out of 10. Amen. He said if you break one, you're guilty of all. It was an all or nothing standard. Okay? So the law... Uh, the Old Testament was a law-based, performance-based approach. The New Testament, however, is a grace-based, faith-based approach. Are you seeing this? Okay. So I'm going to get into, I know y'all want some slides. I got slides. Amen. I'm just trying to do a little overview here so you understand where I'm coming from. Now, the idea, though, of in the New Testament, we're, we're under a grace-based, faith-based approach to having relationship with God. But a lot of people operating under a grace-based system are still trying to make themselves right through a performance-based approach of obeying the law. And it, it, it simply doesn't work, right? So one of the great problems that we have then is a failure to make this shift. And here's this, I'm going to simplify it for you, okay? In the Old Testament, it was about what you do for God. In the New Testament, it's about what God has done for you. Are you, are you seeing the difference here? What, what, what you do for God, if you obey these commandments, you'll be blessed, right? But if you break one of these commandments, uh, you'll be cursed, right? And so the... Um, praise God. I'm, 
for some reason we lost, I don't think we lost the stream feed, but we, I lost connection here, so give me just a sec, we'll get it reconnected. Thank you, Jesus. So what we see, and this is one of the, the biggest ones, is this concept of earning our way. And, and what we see in Romans 4 is this idea. I'm almost caught up here where we need to be. All right, let's go right here, right here. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Are we changing? Yeah. Okay. Now. <clears throat> All right. Let's go here. Romans 13 and 9. So he says, do not be carried away with diverse, that means different and strange doctrines. Remember, a doctrine is just a, is a system of teaching, okay? For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Now, this verse obviously is out of the King James, so it's a little bit wordy. But he's talking about your heart being established in grace as opposed to the old system, which was about dietary laws, what you eat, what you don't eat, what you do, what you don't do, and, and that whole approach to being right before God in the eyes of God. Now, the next thing we see is that the old system was an outside-in approach to trying to live for God and be acceptable, approved by God, being right before God in the eyes of God, where the New Testament is not an outside, from outside of you to inside of you, but the New Testament is about what God does on the inside of you that then uh, you know, works its way out from you. So the difference here is, is it going to be an outside-in approach or is it going to be an inside-out approach? We see, again, in Romans that the Old Testament in and of itself was not bad. Those laws weren't wrong. It's never been right to look a man in the eye and lie to him. It's never been right to, to uh, steal somebody else's husband. It's ne it's, no, it never has been, never will be. Okay? So I think a lot of folks, that's where they get confused when, they, when we start talking about dividing these things and separating them one for, from, from the other. But, but the, the law is right and good and just. The problem is that we couldn't do it. Are you seeing this? That the power of sin was too great. And that we couldn't live up to those uh, standards. So let's go back to it again. The law was an external standard. It was something on the outside of you that you then, uh, through your effort, through your uh, you know, determination, through uh, your willpower, you know, we're going we're gonna to do it, man. We're going to get it right this time. We're going we're gonna to live up to it this time. But see, that's something on the outside of you that, that you're trying to conform to and bring to the inside of you. We're, we were not created by God to live from the outside in. He created us to live from the inside out. So let me, let me and so here's a classic example. When, when the, um, the law that, that came through Moses, when it was ratified, it was when it was presented before the people, 
And, and the people accepted it and said yes to it. This is a good thing. And, and, and this is how we want it to be from now on. They took the blood of an animal and Moses dipped a hyssop branch. Now, a hyssop branch is, is, a, is a branch from a tree, but it had uh, some nap to it. It, 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 would, it would almost be like covered in velvet, so to speak. And they would take that hyssop branch. Moses took the hyssop branch and he dipped it in a, a big basin of blood. And, and he would do it like that, kind of flick his wrist with the, with the blood on that branch. And when he would do it, you can imagine what was happening, right? I mean, it, was, it, it looked like people, it, it, you know, it had been shot. The blood would, 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 you know, be propelled off that branch and it would, it would splatter on their faces, on their clothing. And, and so as he did that, he would say, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. And, and that blood is hitting them on the outside. And, and it was meant to, to be a, uh, a, a graphic reminder. It, it was meant to, to mark them. And that experience was meant to mark them in an, in an unforgettable way. And, and obviously it, it did. All right. Now, let's fast forward. Jesus is about to be crucified. And he's having uh, his last meal with his disciples before he goes to uh, the cross. And he breaks bread and they all eat from the same loaf. And then he takes a cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, right? This is the blood of the new covenant. And he took and he dipped his fingers in it and he started spraying it on them. Is that what he did? No. He took that cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink ye of it and he handed it to them and each one of them took that into themselves do you see the difference between blood being splattered on the outside of you versus something representing the blood that Jesus was about to shed for us literally being taken to on, on the inside of us again I'm trying to help you see the difference between an Old Testament approach versus a New Testament approach. Now, let's go to Matthew, the 17th chapter. Matthew chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. Amen. 4 and 5. Now, to set this up, Jesus has called Peter, James, and John um, aside uh, from the other disciples so we see then that, you know, there were a lot of disciples, but then there were the, the 12 that was the inner circle. And then of that inner circle, there were three. And then of that three, there was one. You, John was the closest to him, then Peter, James, and John, and then you know, and working outwardly from there. And this was how uh, these things, you know, uh, you know played out in Jesus' life. And, it, and if you look at your own life, you know, I think our lives work that way as well. We've got a group of people that we're really close to, then from that group that we're really close to, there's you know, a, a smaller group that we're even closer to than that, and then that one person. Amen. Now, Jesus was transfigured before them. And, and literally, as He stood there in front of them, He began, he began to glow. Uh, and, and what we have here, of course, is the Son of God inside of a human body is emanating outward. The glory that was in him, that was manifest from him every time he did a miracle was now, I mean, I'm not trying to trivialize these things, but if you can just think of God reaching over, God the Father reaching over and just turning up the volume on that, okay? 
or like, a, you know, a light switch that's a dimmer, you know, slide dimmer, okay? I mean, God just reaches over and, and, and as this happens, who he is inwardly begins to so shine through his body that he's, he's literally like a, a being of light standing there in front of them. And in that moment, we see that Moses and Elijah are there speaking to Jesus and, and ministering to him. Now, this is some far out stuff, but let's go back to it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you don't have any problem with that, you probably don't have any problem with you know, any other thing that follows in the scriptures. And so here Jesus is, and by the way, Peter, James, and John are all witnessing this. They're, they're watching this happen in, in amazement. And so this is where we pick up the story. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased Hear him. Hear him. Now, of course, what we know is that that was God the Father speaking. So notice now we go from light emanating out of Jesus to now they're all enveloped in this light. And God the Father speaks. And his words are very simple. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, as is the case with uh, practically everything in the Bible, there's a, there's a lot more going on here and a lot more being stated here and established here than you know, just an amazing, interesting experience. If we look back on the Old Testament, we see that Moses was the one through whom God brought the law. And if we look back on the Old Testament, we see that the, the most um, renowned, the most powerful, what have you, prophet in the Old Testament was Elijah. And, uh, and, and, and so we see then that as Jesus is standing there, Moses is, is there alongside him. Elijah is there alongside him. The, the, this, this uh, you know, super prophet, if you will, uh, from the, uh, the Old Testament. And Moses, through whom the law was given, uh, is, is standing there with Jesus. And Peter gets caught up in the moment and he says, we need to build a tabernacle for all three. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And in that moment, Father God speaks and he says, This is my son. You listen to him. Meaning what? Meaning God the Father just endorsed Jesus and what Jesus came to this earth to say and reveal and explain to us over super prophet Elijah and over Moses, who uh, God used to write the first five books of, of the Bible including bringing the law covenant to uh, the earth. So are you, are, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you, are you seeing what we're talking about here? So th this is, this is a, a really uh, big moment. And when we talk about elevating the New Testament over the Old Testament in the sense of our life and practice, um, this is not something that we came up with and decided to get bold and courageous and just go ahead and declare. This was something that Father God established when He said in comparison to Elijah and Moses and Jesus that you listen to Jesus and you hear what He has to say. 
Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Praise the name of the living God. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to give you one example of this. But if you have time uh, later, you know, this evening before you go to bed or what have you, you may be interested in going through and, and looking at this a little further. But in Jesus' first sermon, he, uh, th- there was a, a pattern. And, and this is, uh, of course, uh, a, a tool uh, that uh, you know, speakers use, uh, a rhythm or a pattern that a speaker will use uh, for emphasis. Uh, one that a lot of people may recognize is uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, uh, you know, famous speech, I Have a Dream. And he would, he would say, I have a dream, and then he would talk about what he dreamed. And then, I have a dream, and he would, he would expand on it further. And so he fell in that rhythm, I have a dream, and then he would say something. I have a dream, and then he would say something. So there, there is a, uh, Jesus used this same um, instrumentation, this same tactic, strategy uh, in his first sermon, what is affectionately known as the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the patterns or the rhythms that Jesus fell into was this, you have heard it said... But I say unto you, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And he did this over and over again. Matthew 5 contains an example of this, verses 27 and 28. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this, again, this pattern you see, I'm not going to go through, through all of them, because what I'm mainly pointing this out to you uh, for is further evidence that, that God, God the Father did it, and now Jesus is doing it. He's elevating what He has to say uh, even above what um, the Old Testament, because where had they heard it said, you shall not commit adultery? This wasn't some like, you know, ancient tradition that was passed down from person to person. This was the word of God. This was one of the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is one of the big ten, right? You should not commit adultery. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say unto you, so notice now he's taking it. He's expanding upon it. He's, he's, and without going into a whole lot of detail, what was going on here is, is people, even the religious leaders, they had established these traditions, these loopholes, where you know they were technically not committing adultery. In, in certain places in our world today, you can marry a woman for the night, right? So you, you get married, so you have sex, and you won't be, quote unquote, you know, more guilty of moral failure or sin or whatever. And then in the morning, you just, you know, annul, d- divorce, whatever. And, and move on. And so it was things like this that uh, Jesus was um, tightening up. Let's say it that way. All right. Now, um, so also pay, pay attention here that Jesus is, is, is emphasizing the, uh, the inward as opposed to the outward. Right. He's saying, look, um, uh, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery, which would be an, an outward act. Of, uh, of sex between two people and, and one, at least one of those people are, are married to someone else. That's what adultery is. So 
But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust uh, for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So notice Jesus is going from emphasizing the outward act to the inward condition of the heart. Because that's ultimately what Jesus came to do for us, right? He came to put a new heart in us. He came to change us inwardly. Uh, because he, we were created by God initially to live from the inside out, and he knew that if he, if, he, if he never changed us inwardly, then we would never be able to express the true righteousness of God and the true holiness of God in our life realities. Amen. Am I going too fast? Y'all still good? All right, so let's go now to Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. This is Jesus speaking yet again on this important subject. He says the law and the prophets were, were until John. And he's referring to John the Baptist now. There's, there's obviously different Johns mentioned in the scriptures. And this is referring to John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' cousin who came in the spirit of Elijah and was the forerunner uh, for Jesus, preaching a message of repentance. He says the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time... The kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. The kingdom has been preached or proclaimed and everyone is pressing into it. Now, we will do an entire class entitled Kingdom Overview. And that's when we're really going to emphasize uh, what it means to be an ambassador, to, to be in this world but not of it. The Bible says as born-again believers, we are citizens of the kingdom. We've already talked about how Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom. He preached the kingdom. That, that salvation is not just about you getting into heaven one day when you die, but it's about God putting His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, in you while you live here on the earth because He wanted to put it in you so that He could then bring it forth from you and through you. So we'll get into all that. We'll break all that down. I've already promised you that once, and, and, and that's coming, right? But I want you to imagine for a moment that Jesus is preaching and teaching about the kingdom and people are wanting in on it. I mean, this is, this is good. Sign me up, Jesus. Where, how do we get this? Where, uh, you know, where, how do we get involved in this? Well, what do we learn from Nicodemus? How, how do you enter the kingdom? Anybody remember? Born again. There's only one way to enter the kingdom. is You, you, you have to be born into it. Okay. Well, a man or a woman cannot be born again until Jesus goes to the cross and pays the price necessary for them to be born again. So I picture this, and I try to uh, paint this picture for, for people. If you can imagine, uh, Birmingham Jefferson Civic Center, for those of you who aren't from around here, that's the main arena um, in, in, in this uh, part of, of, the, of our part of the world. And let's say that you're there for a general admission concert, and um, the, doors, uh, the concert starts at 7, and the doors open at 5.30. Well, people are going to start lining up potentially that morning, the night before, if it's, if it's somebody they really want to see. So you have people that are trying to press into the arena, but the doors to the arena are not yet open for them to be able to actually enter. And so that's what's happening. Jesus brought the kingdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom. People won't enter the kingdom, and so they're being attracted to it. They're surrounding it, but they won't be able to enter into it until after he is crucified and pays the price for our sin to be removed, qualifying us now for the new birth and, and receiving the new birth and being born into that kingdom. But I explained that probably a little more than I needed to, but he's saying the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets were until John, speaking of John the Baptist. Since that time, there's been a shift. 
Now it's not the law and prophets that are being preached, nor is Jesus ministering from the Old Testament model of the prophet. Remember, that was what Nicodemus kept trying to figure out. How can you do these things? I know God's with you. There's no way you're doing this with the power of, of the devil, Beelzebub. I know God's with you. Uh, no man can do what you do, the miracles that you're performing, unless God is with you. And this is why a lot of people suspected Jesus of being a prophet, because it was those same types of, of miracles that were performed by the Old Testament prophets. And so they were trying to, you know, they were trying to figure out where Jesus fit into all of this. And Jesus explained to him that what he was seeing was not him operating in the model of an Old Testament prophet, but it was him operating as a New Testament minister of the kingdom of God. And remember he said the wind blows and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, right? He's talking about visible signs being produced from an invisible source. And remember what else he said? So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus marks a shift where we're going from law and prophets and not just the law and the prophets uh, as a means of external performance-based obedience to be right with God, but also we're transitioning from the law and the prophets as a model to a new model, to a, a new way of, of God not only operating in the earth, but a new way of God operating through people and using people on the earth. All right? So, again, this is um, uh, urgent that we understand. Now, um, praise God, we are, we are struggling up here with connectivity issues. We're not struggling. We're flowing. All right? Used to, when this sort of like this, this sort of thing, I was trying to say sort of thing and stuff at the same time. It, this used to rattle me, but it, it just thank you for your patience as I reboot here. Amen. This has not happened in uh, not just eight classes. It, ha it didn't happen last year after we upgraded the Internet to fiber, but we're good. Everybody good? Are you still with me? Are, am I, going, I don't want to go too fast. This is so important because there are so many people, and I have a slide about this, and I'll say it again when we get there, but there are so many people today who are trying to live in the New Testament with an Old Testament mentality. They're trying to live and function and do what God's called them to do in the New Testament with an Old Testament mindset and Old Testament thinking, and it just uh, it, it, it won't work. Uh, and and it, it confuses people. It frustrates people. And, um, and praise God, we're, we're putting some of this confusion to rest, all right? So the law and the prophets were until John. Since the time, since that time, since John uh, the Baptist came, the kingdom's being preached. Remember, John preached the kingdom. Jesus preached the kingdom. The 12 disciples preached the kingdom. The first 70 missionaries, they preached the kingdom. Repent. We've already covered all this. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom that used to be three heavens away is now as close as your outstretched hand. But if the, repent means a new condition of mind. So he's saying you can't keep thinking the way you've always thought. Because if you keep thinking the way you've always thought, you're going to miss out on the new thing that God is doing. In other words, if you still think according to the old system and the old pattern, you're going to miss out on the new system and the new pattern and how God uh, operates and, and works and moves in our lives according to that pattern. Praise God. Amen. Well, thank you, Jesus. Exactly sure why this is doing this, but we're gonna we're gonna completely back out of it and do it again. 
Anybody have a comment or a question while I reboot this? Y'all are quiet on me tonight. Do you, do you see... Listen now. Th this, is a, this is a big deal for a lot of people. Um, in other words, th this is not a... Um, this is not a rare thing that people struggle with this, okay? Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with the world that we live in. We, we are indoctrinated into, uh, and if we're not careful, we'll be conformed, you know, by the world that we, that we are surrounded by uh, into a performance-based mindset. And what we see from Abraham, because remember, Abraham is, is the great example uh, for us to learn from and follow in his footsteps when it comes to uh, righteousness by faith and, um, and, and living by faith. And he, he says this, he says, so what did uh, Abraham learn uh, concerning these things? And he said that if, if it's based upon something that we do, okay, if it's based upon um, uh, our works, then anything we receive based upon our works is not grace, but it's a debt that we're owed, okay? So if we earn our righteousness through our good works and our obedience to the law, then God owes us something for what we've done. And that may sound a little odd when we talk about it within the context of a relationship with God, but that again is the system that so many of God's people have been, uh, for that matter, everybody on planet earth has been indoctrinated into, um, we, you know, we were raised with, if you want some ice cream, eat your peas. You know, if you want this, then you got to do that. And so that line of thinking, we bring it with us into this grace-based relationship now that we have with God. And, and we think that anything we receive from God, we've got to deserve, we've got to earn. And, and listen, I'll say this again in a minute, but God does not want you to have what you deserve. He wants to be able to give you what He desires for you to have. The law is all about what you deserve. The, 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 the grace-based, uh, uh, faith-based New Testament system is what allows God to give you what He desires for you to have. Remember, what God's wanted your whole life is to treat you like your sin never happened. And what Jesus did on the cross for us as us affords Him that luxury. So I will be very, very careful talking about what you deserve. Because I'm going to tell you, the one thing in life you do not want is what you deserve. And God didn't want you to get what you deserve. He wants to be able to give you what He desires for you to have. But when we try to operate in a, in a grace-based New Testament with a performance-based Old Testament mindset, these two, they, they don't gel. It's like trying to uh, run software on a computer that that computer is not designed for. So we see this verse then. Remember, um, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God's been preached. Let me give you one other example this Old Old Testament model of the prophet. Remember, the Holy Spirit was given to them by measure, by portion. And so Elisha wanted a double measure of the, of the anointing that was the Holy Spirit that was upon Elijah. 
But we come to the New Testament now. The Holy Spirit is, not, is, is given to Jesus without measure. And now Jesus is baptizing us in the Holy Spirit. It's not like a ladleful dumped on your head. It's the Holy Spirit inside of you like rivers of living water, fountains of, of, of living water springing up inside of you. In other words, what we have in the, in the New Testament is, is so far superior to, to what we see in the Old Testament, what they had available to them in the Old Testament. We take so much for granted in the New Testament, and we think things have always been as they are right now with God. But my brother, my sister, they have, they have not been as they are right now. Uh, there are people who knew the day we live in and, and experience and enjoy with God. There are people in the Old Testament who looked ahead. God revealed some things to them and they knew that a better day was coming. He told them there's coming a day when I'm not going to remember your sins any longer. There's coming a day when they'll no longer be held against you that I'll remove them from you once and for all. They didn't live in that day, but they knew that day was coming and they longed for it, desperately longed for it. And so here we are in, in, in the middle of what they saw and knew was coming. But there had to be a, a time of transition where we transition from one system to the next, where we transition from one covenant to the next. So much of the opening uh, chapters of the book of Galatians are, are dedicated to this issue where you know, he says, how is it that you've begun in the Spirit? Now you're going to try to finish it in the flesh. They had this idea that, okay, you know, God's forgiven us and He's made us right. Now we'll take it from here, God. He says, you've been bewitched. That's not how this works. You can't sustain something you could never produce. You could, not, you could not make yourself right before God in the eyes of God. And any effort that you make to, to do that is as filthy rags to God. But equally so, you can't, you can't maintain in your own strength and ability the very thing that you could never produce. You can't make yourself right before God in the eyes of God. And you can't keep yourself right before God in the eyes of God. You can't make yourself free from sin. And you can't keep yourself free from sin apart from the power of God on the inside of you that enables you to live a righteous life, that enables you to live a life free from the bondage of sin. And so there's, there's got to be, at some point, a transition. First of all, it's got to happen, literally happen here on planet Earth, and it did. And then that same transition has got to take place now in, in our hearts and lives where we transition away from a law-based, performance-based approach uh, to, to living for God, what we deserve, what we've earned, how good we've been. See, a lot of people like that system because they want to have you know, seemingly control over it. And so this is where we get this idea that because we've got so many people praying, God somehow owes us a miracle. And again, God will not owe you anything, but He's freely given you all things. But this idea that we're going to put God in our debt is, is broken. It will not work. And I would advise you to run from it as quickly as possible. But this verse, John chapter 3, verse 30, perhaps you're familiar with it. It's where John the Baptist says, he must, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is the transition that he's talking about. John the Baptist was the last prophet of the old system. And according to Jesus, he was the greatest prophet born of a woman. He's the greatest prophet of the old system. So John the Baptist was the last prophet of the old system. And so he's saying, in essence, that I've got to 
uh, decrease. Because remember, John was a very, very popular man. Initially, you know, it was Jesus who, I mean, John the Baptist was all the rage. This was while Jesus was, was still a carpenter in Nazareth. Uh, and so, you know, the Bible talks about his light and, and, and how bright it was for a season. Okay. But there came a time where John's light began to dim as Jesus's light began to rise. And this, this is that transition that we're talking about. Now, let's, let's use John the Baptist and Jesus to establish some, uh, some, some uh, you know, what's the right word I'm looking for here? To see the difference, the division that we're talking about, dividing the old from the new. All right. So here we go. Let's work our way through these. I'll put them on the screen. John the Baptist represented a system that was going away. Jesus represented a new system and continues to represent it, by the way, that was coming to replace the system John represented. Now, the law and the prophets, obviously much more than John the Baptist as a single individual. But John the Baptist, when he said, I'm uh, decreasing so that he can increase, he was referencing the system that he represented and that system was fading away while the new system was coming to light. All right? So let's, uh, let's look at it again now. Let's look at it a little deeper. So John preached turn from sin. John preached turn from sin. Jesus came to take away our sin. John preached turn from sin. Jesus came to take away our sin. Now, we see, again, fundamental differences here. John baptized with water. Jesus baptized with the Holy Ghost. If you read it carefully in, in, in John's Gospel, now this John's Gospel is not John the Baptist, that's John the Beloved, okay? But if you read it carefully in John's Gospel, you'll see that Jesus never baptized a single person in water. He was... Uh, baptized by John the Baptist himself in water, but he personally never baptized anyone in water. His disciples baptized people in water, but Jesus did not to distinguish himself as the one who came to baptize you and me with the Holy Ghost. John the Baptist was the end of an era. He was the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus, on the other hand, marked the beginning of a new era, okay? And the new era, of course, that Jesus marked the beginning of is the era of grace. We live in the days of grace, amen. So John's era was one of works, what you do for God. Think of it that way, simplify it. John's era was one of works, what you do for God, Jesus' era is one of grace, what God has done for you. What God has done for you. Now, let me come back on camera here for those watching online. Don't misunderstand what we're saying here. What we do for God is very, very important. But there is a big difference between doing something for God to be accepted by God versus doing something for God because you are accepted by God. 
Do you see the difference there? Working to gain his approval versus working because you've received his approval. Doing it to earn something from him versus doing it because he's freely given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's a huge difference there. Your um, right standing with God is not determined by your works, but your rewards, both in this life and the life that is to come, are determined by your works. But we've got to make sure we uh, distinguish the difference um, between those two. Okay, Now, John's era was based upon what you deserve. Okay, Jesus' era is based upon what God desires for you to have. All right. Apologize for these uh, connectivity issues here. Praise God. All right. Do you see the difference here? Now, do you see when we talk about a, a pastor or a minister in the pulpit... If, 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 if he or she does not, um, you know, accurately divide the old system from the new, but instead tries to balance one with the other, do you see how that's going to lead to confusion? If they preach uh, grace on a Sunday morning and then uh, works on a Sunday night, if they preach what God's done for you, uh, as a means of being right with him on Sunday morning, and then the next Sunday morning they preach uh, what you do for God as a means of being right. You can use scriptures. In other words, you, you can preach from the Bible both sermons, but notice how confusing that is. And, that, and that's where I found myself, um, I don't know, late teens, early 20s, you know. I'm like, man, you know. Um, something's not right here with this. You know, I mean, God's not confused. Are you, are you with me? People may be, but God's not confused. And, and this idea that it's both ways at the same time, that, that doesn't sound like God at all to me. And so that's when, you know, he you know, began asking these questions. He began to reveal these things to me. And, of course, some of the churches that I was a part of and on staff, you know, in, in, in those days, they... Uh, they weren't real. Now, some were. Some of the people in those churches were, but some of the folks, uh, even some of the pastors that I served under, they weren't real. <laughs> they weren't real happy with uh, with what it was that the Lord was showing me. But I, I believe, and again, search it out for yourself. But I believe that what I'm showing you here is um, is not only accurate. It's not only based in the scriptures, but is a huge problem that needs to be corrected and resolved in the body of Christ. Okay. Now, let's keep going here. John's era, we've already talked about this one, proved the power of sin. Jesus' era proves the power of love. Okay? Now, so many of God's people, as we've already said, are trying to live in the New Testament with an Old Testament mindset. Now, let's keep going here. The revelation of the nature and personality of God is progressive throughout the Scriptures. Okay? Now, that's, a, that's kind of a wordy point, wordy statement, that maybe requires a little explanation before we go on. And I want to make sure that you understand. I'm not saying that God changes. We know that He does not change. We know that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what God has revealed to mankind about Himself 
has increased throughout the scriptures. Meaning what? Meaning we know more about him come the gospel of Matthew than we knew about him in the first five books of the Bible. Because God has chosen as the Bible unfolds to reveal more and more of himself, his nature, his personality, okay, to us as the Bible uh, is developed, as, as the story is uh, being uh, revealed. So that's what we mean by the revelation of the nature and personality of God. I'm not saying the personality, I'm not saying the nature and personality of God is progressive. I'm saying the revelation, God revealing his eternal nature and personality to us is progressive throughout the scriptures. Okay? So that's really, really important as well. So if, if I preach a message to you from the book of Exodus based upon what we understood about God in the book of Exodus, I could very easily draw some wrong conclusions about his true nature and personality because by the time Exodus was written, there's still a whole lot about him that we haven't had revealed to us yet. Are you seeing this? So here, here's, yes, sir. Um, so the question for those of you listening online is, would I suggest not reading the Old Testament, especially if someone's new in their relationship with God? And so the answer to that question is yes and no, or it depends, okay? Um, what we see is, especially the Apostle Paul, in his writings, he referenced a lot of the Old Testament. Um, Hebrews, uh, especially, we see a lot of the Old Testament referenced. So... The, the key thing, so when I say yes and no, yes, we need to study the Old Testament. But, you know, people have a tendency when, when they um, begin to read the Bible, and the Bible, I think, is the only book that people do this. They either start at the beginning, which is a good place to start, or they just jump to the book of Revelation. Okay. I, I recommend that you start with the Gospel of John and then go to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, and so, a, um, for lack of a, a, a better word, um, you know, if you think of it as a diet, okay, then I would go uh, heavy on the New Testament, specifically the epistles, the, the four Gospels tell us what Jesus did for us and His teachings. We need to study those. We need to know them. We need to memorize them, okay? But it's the epistles, starting with Romans, okay, that tell us why Jesus did it for us and what it means to us now, okay? So a, a, a steady diet concentrated on those things, but obviously I recommend, some of you heard me say this, a proverb a day from the Old Testament, the poetry and the Psalms, Again, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, all those things are wonderful. But if, if you will look for Jesus in the Old Testament, that's, it's a giant index finger pointing to Him. 
And I think that's where a lot of people get confused in reading the Old Testament. You know, you, you read how things operated and functioned, the, um, the, the animal sacrifices, um, the, the, the very harsh punishments and, and things. Again, it's, it's there to prove the power of sin. And, you know, we live in a day and age where people take sin very lightly, very casually. You know, we're, we're so, we're so um, modern and, and, you know, the, God is so outdated. No, he's not outdated. Uh, and, and so, but the key thing, the key thing is when you study that, the Old Testament and read the Old Testament, know, please know that um, Jesus has fulfilled that for you. And if, if, if a baby Christian reads that and thinks, I got to do all this to be right with God, I'm sunk, I might as well quit now. They become overwhelmed by it, discouraged by it, and all those other things because they don't have it in the proper context, which means what? Again, they're not rightly dividing it. Okay, so I don't know if that helped or not. But the revelation of nature, the revelation of the nature and personality of God is progressive throughout the scriptures. He does not change, but what we learn of Him and what we know of Him does change. So here, here is another classic example of this, okay? Um, Solomon, at the end of his life, he, he says this about life itself. He says life is vanity. It's a cruel hoax. It's not worth living. Well, the Bible is accurate in the sense that that was where Solomon was at that point in his life. That's what Solomon believed. And the Bible accurately records that. But we know better than that now. Amen? Uh, you, you know, we, we understand that that. Apart from God, life's not worth living, but, but as new creations in Christ Jesus, with the peace of God in our hearts and lives, the joy of the Lord is our strength, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, you know, we're a success looking for some place to happen. Now, here's, here's another way and a, and a fun and interesting way to make the point that I'm trying to make now. God uses many different names to identify himself in the scriptures, and each one of those names reveals something to us about him we did not previously know. So the scriptures use 950 different names of God. Okay, and for the next six weeks, we're going to, no, we're not, okay. Um, but if you're interested in that, there's, there's a website for you that, um, that really it's, it's beautifully uh, done. I'm not sure who produced that. I guess ChristianAnswers.net, okay? But ChristianAnswers.net forward slash dictionary forward slash names of God is the website where you find the exhaustive list of the 950 names of God. Well, how, how is it that God, you know, could have 950 different names? Um, to be honest with you, he could have uh, 900 million different names, um, those who have been to heaven report back that um, every time the angels go around the throne of God, they see something about him that they hadn't seen before. <laughs> and so um, when we talk about God introducing himself to us in different ways, he's revealing something to us about himself, but but notice the connection here is it's not just that this is who I am, but this is who I would like to be to you. This is what I want you to know about me, but I want you to know this about me because 
this is what I want to uh, be to you and who I want to be to you. My parents um, uh, really instilled something in me and my brother and sister when, when we were younger. It's one of those things, I man, you just hear it said over and over and over again. Uh, my mom would say, he'll be everything to you that you need him to be. Speaking of Jesus, he'll be everything to you that you need him to be. He'll be everything to you that you need him to be. And, and that's true. So let me give you, let me give you an example uh, of just a few of these. Um, you've probably heard God uh, referred to as Jehovah Jireh. And this means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. We take for granted that God is a provider, but this was something that, that God formally introduced himself as to his people because he wanted them to understand this side of his nature and this side of his personality. Then we've got uh, Jehovah Ra'ah, and this is the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, And in an agricultural uh, you know, economy and culture in their day, this one obviously carried a lot more weight with them than perhaps it uh, does uh, with us. Um, he introduced himself as Jehovah Rapha, and this means the Lord who heals you or the Lord your healer. And this is speaking specifically of physical healing of the human body. The Lord who heals you, the Lord your healer. Jehovah pronounced Sidkanu with a T. Jehovah Sidkanu means the Lord our righteousness. So God introduced himself all the way back in the Old Testament as our righteousness. And it wasn't, of course, until Jesus did what he did for us that we could accept him and his righteousness as and for ourselves. And so the list goes on and on and on and on. One of the things that I think coincides with this is we have this tendency to declare our need and dependence for God as if it's on a sliding scale. Um, we even sing songs about needing Him more today than we did before. I'm not going to split hairs with anybody, but I think that's a wrong or incorrect way of looking at it. The correct way, I believe, is to recognize that our need for God is absolute. Jesus said, I can do nothing without Him. And if Jesus could do nothing without Him, we are foolish to think that we can. What I think does change as we grow and as we mature in the things of God is the, the, the realization of our need for Him. And I think that's sometimes why it feels like we need Him more now than ever. Or, you know, if we're not careful, we find ourselves in a tight spot or a crisis. And now all of a sudden, oh, I, I need you, God. I need you, God. No, you, you needed Him when you weren't thinking about Him, right? Now that you've got a situation that you can't seem to figure out, we start this idea that we need Him more um, uh, now than we uh, ever have, but the reality is uh, we've always needed Him and we, and we always will. So when we talk about you know, rightly dividing, and uh, next class we'll, we'll get into um, the, the, what I call the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the Word of God, which is the parts written in red, when you read something in the Old Testament that doesn't seem to make sense to you or doesn't seem to line up with 
God revealed to man in the life of Jesus, we have to take that from the old and drag it through the blood of Jesus into the new to gain um, a, the right perspective and the right understanding of these things. In other words, you, you don't let the lesser interpret the greater. You let the greater shed light on the lesser. And when I say lesser, lesser, remember this is the point. God revealing himself to mankind is progressive throughout Scripture. You know, when, who do I tell them sent me? That's what, what Moses asked God, right? Is you tell them I am sent you. In the early days of Abraham walking with God, he didn't understand that God was the only true and living God. There was all kinds of gods. You know, his family worshipped the moon god. But, you know, God calls him out. And he's like, man, finally found a God that speaks back. Finally found a God that actually is interested in me. Finally found a God that, you see. But, you know, his, um, you know, culture was that of many gods. But now, you know, he's finding out, hey, you know what? All those are false gods. There's only one true and living God. We take for granted that mankind has always thought that. But there's all kind of people on planet Earth that don't think that today. So God revealing himself to us is progressive throughout the scripture. So that doesn't mean we can't benefit from what people understood about God, we can absolutely benefit. Absolutely, we can benefit from what people understood about God, um, even though they didn't understand things that we know about God today. We can learn from that and benefit from that. But if one seems to contradict the other, we always go with what Jesus said. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Okay? Now... Um, one last passage and, um, and we'll be done for the evening, okay? Thank you, Jesus. Um, let, me, let me try to just talk to you for a second, okay? Maybe, maybe part of the reason why um, I'm so passionate about this this portion of the teaching is, and I'm not bragging when I say this. I, you've heard me, you've heard me um, talk about it before. I started going to church nine months before I was born. I was raised in church, born again when I was very young, baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was very young, knew I was called to preach when I was very young, started preaching when I was very young. Um, I've been very serious about the things of God um, since I was very young, and. Um, This one part that I'm talking about now is there was once I understood the place of the old and the place of the new and that they're not to be balanced but to be divided. So why I'm so passionate about explaining this to people is because of the difference that it made in my life. Okay. When I finally realized, okay, I can trust what Jesus has revealed to me about God the Father, even when it seems, where, where did they get, let's call fire down from heaven and burn these people up for disrespecting us? Where'd they get that from? Anybody? They got it from the Old Testament. We got, we got scriptures on this, Jesus. Which whoever said the, the devil, obviously the devil's trying to manipulate that situation. You know, Jesus being associated with mass murder. I mean, that, that really went over well, wouldn't it, you know? 
But see, it was, it was, it, it's more than that, though. He, he came to reveal to us the, the true nature and the true personality of God in a, in a living, breathing, functioning example for us uh, to look at and to learn from and follow. So when they said, let's call fire down from heaven, they, they were like, they got that from the Old Testament. But Jesus is like, oh, you're, it's a new day, boys. You know, then come take life, came to give it. Then come to take it, came to give it. Now, watch this and then we'll pray, okay? Matthew 13, 34 and 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things. Now, here's the, that last, this last phrase, okay? I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Wow. Do you realize there were things that God knew, that God knew, that we were going to need to know, that He kept quiet until Jesus got here to reveal them and to deliver them? Things that are important. That, in fact, in another place, Jesus talks about those who would have given basically anything to hear what those people were hearing and what we're hearing, to see what those people saw um, in Jesus' day and what we're seeing. There, there are people who live for God the best they knew how on earth, struggling you know, with a law of sin and death and trying to live up to God's standards and meaning well and sacrificing animals and praying and fasting and following everything they could follow and then some right, um, that, that didn't know or have revealed to them or even available for them to know the things that have now been revealed to you and me. I don't know, does that make you grateful? It makes me grateful. It, 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 um, amen. So how much more then? To whom much has been given? Amen. Much is required. So how much more then should... Um, should we go after these things? Jesus is revealing things that have never been revealed to anyone, meaning these things were not revealed to the Old Testament writers. So if it wasn't revealed to them, they did not have that knowledge bank uh, to, to draw from in the things that God inspired them to write to the people in their day who were living under their system. But thank God we live under a new and better way. Amen? Are you excited about it? Are you willing to rightly divide it? Are you willing to, to, to make a, a clean break and, and realize that the, the Old Testament is there for our benefit, to learn from? Man, all kinds of wonderful examples of people who believe God and trusted God and, and um, live for God. All kinds of uh, principles and truths and wisdom that are revealed to us in the Old Testament that we need to learn, we need to grow from, we need to study. But we're explainers of all that. We're, we benefit from all that. But we're ministers of and live under the new. Amen. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Thank you for helping us, Lord, through um, some of the te technology issues and what have you, Father. And I, I pray, Lord, at the end of it now, just like we prayed at the beginning of it, Lord, that, that you would ultimately speak to us through uh, all of these different uh, things that we've covered tonight. Lord, that, um, 
that, that the men and women who are a part of this class and, and have received it and have, have heard it now, Lord, will uh, begin to seek you uh, concerning the areas in their own lives where they're holding on to an Old Testament mindset trying to live in a New Testament reality. Lord, I thank you for your blessing upon each one of us as, um, as we move on to what's next uh, in this evening. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Know that you love, know that God's for you, and we'll see you next week if not before. Praise God.